Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm speaking with Christoph Kalter about his post-colonial people, the return from Africa and the remaking of Portugal, out with Cambridge University Press in 2022. Dr. Kalter is a historian of Western Europe in its global context, currently professor of modern history at the University of Agder. He holds a PhD from 2010 and a Venia Legendi 2019 in modern history from the Free University of Berlin, where he taught and conducted research from 2011 to 2020. His first book is The Discovery of the Third World, Decolonization and the Rise of the New Left in France, circa 1950-1976, also out with Cambridge in 2016. However, this was originally published in German in 2011 before the English translation. Post-Colonial People, The Return from Africa and the Remaking of Portugal is his second book. Christoph Kalter, uh, Christoph, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the interest you putting in the book and you taking the time. It's great. I'm excited to talk to yeah. you today. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this book because as you point out in the introduction, this is a topic that really has not been discussed in the larger history of decolonization and Western European history. Um, but before we get into post-colonial people, um, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, how did you come to be a historian of post-colonial France and Portugal? And um, and I'm also curious about your your trajectory because you are speaking to us from uh, from Norway now. Um, uh, someone who's from Germany who writes on uh, uh, Portuguese who came who returned from Africa. So I'm I'm very curious in your your roots, your roots and your roots. Okay. Yeah. No. Sure. Great question. Um, I I um, I think I have three possible answers, and I'll, I'll just let you pick one. So the first one would be to to speak about the contingencies of life. A second one would be to to speak about personal inclination, and a third one would be to speak about um academic and intellectual trajectories. So well, give give us the second and the third. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the second and the third is, um, I think, um, as an undergrad, I did. Um, so I studied in Berlin. I'm from Germany, from south of Germany, but moved up to Berlin, where I spent the last 25 years. And as an undergrad, I took some classes in German history, and I thought they were fascinating, really, really important and, and good stuff. And I learned a lot. But at the same time, it soon turned out that um what I was most attracted by were, in fact, histories that went beyond local or national German histories, or in fact, histories that did not have anything to do with Germany in the first place. And at the time, this was a very sort of traditional German history department. So you had European history, which was basically German history, and then there was a little bit of British history and a little bit of French history and maybe here and there a little bit of Italian history. And the one thing I went for was French history at the time. So that was how it sort of um, started. And I think um, the point is for me that um, it, it's not a it's it's a time honored idea that that reading is a way of traveling. And it's that's that's, that's actually one of my stock answers. I, I grew up in in Hawaii on islands, and which I only left the islands about four or five times before I was 18 and got interested in history because I was able to travel the world. See that um, makes through a book. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. That made perfect sense to me. And for me, I think um, researching, writing history is a form of traveling, not only back in time, but also in space, in language and in cultural background. And it's a way of going beyond the confines of whatever place I found myself stuck in. So that was Berlin for a long time, and now it's southern Norway, and it's just really a pleasure to be sitting in southern Norway and to be reading about Portugal or Angola. Um, so I think that that's the sort of personal inclination. Um, as for the more academic and intellectual trajectory, I, I did an MA thesis actually on German history, so I was interested in the German New Left in the 1960s and 1968 and that kind of thing, and the Vietnam War. Uh, about which you must know a ton of things that I don't. But at the time, it, it just struck me that these kids living in a sort of post-fascist consumer society would be interested in the Vietnam War. And of course, that's a very well-known story, but it was a new story for me at the time. So I was trying to understand what is going on here and discovered that, well, there's this idea of the third world, 
of a revolutionary third world, a new force uh, in world politics that was really attractive to um, people on the left of the political spectrum and discontent with the old left of the communist and the social democratic parties. And so that was kind of my um, MA thesis, but it turned out that these West German guys, they um, really got a lot of inspiration from the Algerian War of Independence, as as everyone did at the time. It's really such a foundational moment. And so that that gave me a reason to get interested in, in French history, actually, because lots of the arguments circulating in the German New Left were, in fact, directly imported from the French New Left at the time. And that led to my first book, which is, is a sort of political, conceptual, intellectual history of the Third World concept in revolutionary politics in the 1960s and 70s, but in that French context. And that, um, I think, it triggered my broader interest in the history of decolonization. And so that that made me a historian of France. So we've been we've been watching you being pulled uh, steadily southwest uh, from Berlin down into France, and then so how how did you wind up in Portugal and and beyond and and the the tail end of the Portuguese Empire? It's it's in a way such a boring story because I did my yeah unfortunately like I did my PhD and um, um, then I had an opportunity to apply for a position with a professor that had been supervising my PhD uh, postdoc position. And in order to be able to apply, I needed to come up with a new project. And doing work on France and decolonization, I had come across uh, um, the famous case of the Pied Noir, so Algerian settlers returning after independence 1962 from Algeria to metropolitan France. And that history fascinated me because it's there's just something about these people returning or going to a place where they're supposed to belong and in many ways they do and many others they don't many of them and, aren't aren't ethnically french right i mean there's uh, italians and maltese and and spaniards i mean it, but, but go on. yeah 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 it, it really is a fascinating story yes and um uh, um there's this wonderful book also about the maltese um uh returning um what, what is it again uh, it will come to me later, but it's it's just a fascinating story. And th- so they're supposed to be French, and they're supposed to be going to France and to some somehow be at home there, but they don't really want to, and no one wants them there. So I thought that was interesting, and I thought, okay, I'd like to do something like that, but not that, because it seemed to me that there was a lot of work on this already. And also, frankly, I was fed up with the French history um, at that point in time. And I wanted to do something new, something else. And so I was systematically looking for similar cases. And then the Portuguese case popped up. And it is in many ways comparable in other ways that I'm sure we will explore. It's even more dramatic, if you will. Yeah. And that Portuguese case, it turned out, was one on which there was not a lot of research. So I thought, I'll, I'll go for this. And it was a strange decision to make because I had never... I had never traveled to Portugal at this point in time. I'd never consciously met a Portuguese person. And still, I decided to do that. And then, of course, the first thing to do was learn the language. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it great success. I mean, I think the books are extremely informative and readable and um readable is an understatement. Um, but it uh it really fills an important void in at least what I thought I knew about decolonization and about European history in in this time period. Um, so before we get into the book itself, um, could you give us a little bit of context on the history of the Portuguese Empire, which uh, I, I teach these big world history classes. So the Portuguese Empire is you know, always pretty amazing because in some ways it's the first and the last of these great colonial empires. Um, um, could you so could you give us a little a, a short history of the Portuguese Empire just to give us the context? Right, of course. Yes, um, I'll I'll try to to keep it short and concise. So as you, as you said, it's it's only five hundred years, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so it is five hundred years. So that that's pretty amazing, and it is um, as you said, it is um, the first and the last European overseas empire. Um, going back to the 15th century and going uh, in ending only in the in the last 
um, third of the 20th century because they were really stubbornly resisting the trend towards decolonization. After everybody else had basically given up on empire, they were still continuing. And that's something we'll talk about more. Yeah, just as, um, as, a, as a footnote, even Macau outlasts Hong Kong. It's by, true. By about a year and a half, right? I was I actually visited in 97, I visited Hong Kong and Macau. Um, so I actually saw, I, I've seen the Portuguese empire at the, at the tail end. I would love to travel to Macau one day. Um, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't think I could advise it now. No, it's, it's Las Vegas. Uh, it was, it was amazing in 97 because there was the, the, um, this mid, uh, mid-century architecture and there's a real, uh, Sino-Luso culture and the food was incredible. But my understanding now, and I've taught in China for a couple of years, and my um, my very well-off students at those universities, they wow. go down to Macau, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's like Vegas. It's wonderful. I'm like, no, no. Maybe that's fun for you. That's fun for you, for you guys, <laughs> but that's not okay. that's not what I want. But anyway, we digress. So it's, it's this incredibly long-lived empire. It is a long-lived empire, which starts in 1415, uh, when the Portugal, the Portuguese begin their overseas expansion by uh, conquering uh, Ceuta, I assume it's pronounced in, in English. I said today a Spanish autonomous city, strangely enough, on the north coast of Africa and um, uh, bordering Morocco. And from there, the Portuguese begin exploring the Atlantic Ocean and sailing, sailing along the western coastline of Africa with all those um, incredible, famous um, so-called explorers that the Portuguese are still um, very proud of uh, today. So it's a whole thing in Portuguese contemporary culture. Um, Bartolomeu Diaz, who's sailing around the southern tip of the continent and uh, um, opening up um, a sea route to Asia for the Portuguese. Um, and the Portuguese are establishing trading posts and colonies um, along these uh, routes throughout Africa, Asia. Also go to South America, to Brazil, of course, famously. And um, what they do is establish um, uh, um, lucrative trade in, in spices, in gold, and other valuable commodities, and, and making really Portugal um, one of the wealthiest countries in Europe for some time, which... It's really surprising if if you look at the later history of Portugal. So during the 16th Empire, um, Lisbon is a truly global city. Um, at the time, I think uh, the population uh, there uh, has 10% Black people, something that is never reached again before the end of the 20th century in Portugal. Um, but in the 17th century, the Portuguese Empire begins to decline as other European colonial powers, the Dutch and the British, begin to challenge the Portuguese dominance in, in overseas trade. In 1822, Brazil is lost, um, uh, as the Portuguese like to say, so Brazil is declaring its independence from Portugal, and empire begins to shrink further, but at the same time, the Portuguese are then turning towards what they call their third empire, the African empire. So what had been just a number of trading posts along the African coastline, now becomes um, a bridgehead for um, establishing sort of typical European-style colonial rule in these territories um, in the wake of the infamous Berlin Conference in 1884-85. They're they're playing a role in the scramble for Africa and, and Angola and Mozambique and pushing in the interior. They are absolutely, and and they 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 spend uh, the better part of the eighteen nineties to nineteen twenty with so called pacification campaigns, which are of course not pas- pas- like not um, peaceful, <laughs> not peaceful in yeah. any way, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, extremely brutal, and and um, that is uh, sort of when we really see um, the third Portuguese empire in Africa emerging, but it's not yet uh, the point in time where we see. Um, large settler settler communities in these places that comes a little later, yeah, and and they've got they've also got little footholds in uh, Southeast Asia with um, East Timor, uh, Southern China with Macau I mentioned, and India with Goa. Yeah, absolutely. Until so, e- even though we think you know the Portuguese Empire has gone into this decline with you know the, the sort of greater Iberian colonial world, there's still significant global reach in some you know 
strategically very interesting uh places um and uh yeah so um could you talk a bit about the the moment of decolonization i mean how how did this empire come to an end and um obviously we need to talk about portuguese decolonization in the context of the carnation revolution so maybe i'm asking you to to do two things here like uh or maybe they're they're so intertwined that you can't separate the carnation revolution and decolonization but um, also note how Portuguese decolonization differed from other examples of decolonization, particularly the French or, or British. Yeah, right. That's an interesting question. Um, so how did Portugal's empire end? Well, the the important thing to keep in mind here is that not only, as you said earlier, uh, is Portugal the first and the last European overseas empire, but also Portugal has the sort of longest 20th century dictatorship in Europe the so-called new state, Estado Novo in Portuguese, and that new state um, uh, is only coming down 48 years after its installation in 1974. And in 1974, which is the the year of my birth, coincidentally, uh, 1974, um, we see a military coup um, that is to say that it is officers from the Portuguese army that are toppling the dictatorship and that then transforms into a sort of popular uprising and a veritable revolution that is doing away with the dictatorship and doing away with empire at the same time. Um, and the, the, the new men in power, so these movement of the armed forces, as they are called, they have a program that they announce, and that program is called the three Ds. The first one is democratization. The second is development, because they consider Portugal to be underdeveloped economically, socially, and culturally. And the third one is decolonization. And uh, that points to one of the really most important root causes of this Portuguese revolution, which is the colonial wars that have been going on in the Portuguese African territories since 1961. In three of these five territories, and now we're talking about Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, in these territories there is armed resistance against the Portuguese and as one would imagine, because that's the way these wars of decolonization often tend to go, it's really um, sort of impossible for the national liberation movements to achieve a military full-out victory. At the same time, it's impossible for the Portuguese to put out every fire of resistance. They just don't, they just can't do it. And what becomes increasingly clear is that they're politically losing this war. Um, because um, international opinion, if such a thing exists, is turning more and more against Portuguese colonialism. And, and and this is a familiar story, right? We, we see this in Algeria. We see this in the American war in Vietnam. But but here but in famously in Algeria the the officers have a response right they they when it looks like uh, the Fourth Republic is going to not be committed to the war they they revolt in 1958 and uh, initially support De Gaulle but then when they realize De Gaulle is going to favor decolonization they the OAS turns on him and and so you have the the officer corps at odds with the any discussion of decolonization and I think you can make a you know an it's not a. It's it, you can make an historical analogy to uh, the American military and the and the uh, and the American war in Vietnam. Um, so di different, but but a similar commitment from the military to continue this war. I mean, there's a there's a revisionist school in American historiography that um, uh, the United States could have won Vietnam. It was just a political uh, political weakness, right? But here, this is so, and this is why I find this your book and the, and the Portuguese example so stimulating is that here you have something totally different where the officer corps revolts against the war, right? What? Yeah. They do, and they've been celebrated, and rightly so, of course, as heroes ever since, which in a way has the downside, if I may just make that common in Portuguese memory culture, of um, not making it clear that these people who were in fact ending the colonial wars at the same time are, of course, the people that had been engaging in this war for a number of years, committing all sorts of atrocities, 
that no one has ever um, faced any um, consequences for. So it's a very um, ambivalent story, but they are the heroes of this um, year, 1974. Uh, on April 25, 1974, they toppled the dictatorship and they make it immediately clear that um, part of the new Portugal has to be um, a decisive drive towards decolonization. And now that's um, within the, so the Antonio de Spinola, who is the new president of Portugal, has a sort of different idea. He wants a sort of face transfer um, with the idea of making Portugal still an important play in African affairs. But that really isn't uh, the time anymore for that kind of um, negotiated solution. Um, the Portuguese are under a lot of pressure in, in the territories in Africa. Um, their soldiers don't want to go on fighting. And the population uh, back home wants to see uh, those soldiers to, to return to Portugal. So they're really speeding up um, uh, negotiations with the uh, um, different movements of liberation in the colonies, leading to the independence of all African um, colonies uh, within uh, 1974 and 1975. So in November 1975, with the independence of Angola, it's over. And and, and East Timor. And East Timor. And East Timor. This is, this is that's my corner of the world. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, this this brings us to your book. Um, so what does this mean for the uh, the so-called white settler uh, population in the colonies? Um, how, uh, how well, first? How many are there? What's the size of this? settler population which colonies are they in um uh, who were they civilians administrators soldiers um and and what are their what are their choices in, in 1974 1975 yeah so what was the size of these settler populations which colonies did they live in so basically the portuguese have two settler colonies in africa one of them is angola it's the bigger one, and the other one is Mozambique. Um, in Angola, around independence, we have something like 300,000, maybe 350,000 Portuguese settlers. Whereas in Mozambique, they would be numbering uh, around 200,000, a little more, maybe. The numbers are um, uncertain. What is really interesting, I think, about these settlers is that um, most of them, like, it's true there are some colonies, uh, there are some families in these colonies that have roots that go back three generations, sometimes even four. But that is a very um, uh, untypical uh, story. Most of them, in fact, um, have gone, have migrated to the colonies from Portugal in the 1950s, 1960s, even in the 1970s. So many of them um, have uh, only spent part of their adult life in the colonies before they were actually returning to Portugal, like literally returning, because that is where they migrated from a couple of years ago. Um, that would be the case of around two-thirds of the people returning in 1975. They would have been born in the metropole and not in the colonies. That's interesting because if we compare it to, um, for example, Algeria, in Algeria, we see that 80% of those coming to France in 1962 had in fact been born in Algeria in the colony. So it's a sort of different kind of setup. Yeah, and some of their families go some of their families go back for generations. Mm, and yeah. some of them their families, they may have been born there, but they again they go to they go to their families can be traced back to Spain or Malta or or Italy. And but these for in this in this case, many of them are are indeed very much Portuguese who have been in uh in africa for um a couple decades but maybe as short as a, a few years absolutely and and yeah. they come they really only start coming in substantial numbers after the second world war there's a number of reasons for that there is an economic boom in the colonies at the time but it's also that there is a conscious settlement policy by the portuguese dictatorship at the time and wasn't wasn't there a, a curious administrative change? Maybe I, I want to say nineteen sixty one, but there about where the the territories of what we are talking about as colonies became Portuguese territory. Do I have that right? Yeah, they did. It was in yeah. nineteen fifty 
it was in 1951. 51, 51 excuse me. Yeah. Uh, there was a what they call the constitutional revision. And that constitutional revision uh, proclaimed that there were no Portuguese colonies any longer. Instead, these were overseas territories of, um, of an indivisible nation. It's very much like the French uh, like to think about Algeria, only that the Portuguese um, applied this to their entire empire, saying this is just basically one country, even if it's um, uh, um, uh, if, if it's sort of on, on different continents, it is really only one country, and these are overseas provinces. And that was um, a sort of legalistic argument that they used in the United Nations, where, of course, everyone was pressing them to decolonize, and they said, we don't know what you're talking about. There are no colonies. We cannot decolonize <laughs> a nation, can we? Who, who me? I don't have any colonies. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and I'll, I'll note that this is within a few years that um, my home got statehood. Ooh. Hawaii became the 50th state in 1959. 1959. And, and yeah. um, I, I, you know, re reading this book, I, I couldn't help but sort of uh, reflect on my, my family's history um, and had, had things taken a different turn in Hawaii with the sovereignty movement. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's there's just it, there's interesting parallels. There's very interesting parallels, um, you know. Uh, but moving on. Um, so, come 1975, you have we're we're talking about half a million people coming into Portugal, um, and they're leaving it under duress, right? So many of them are leaving with a suitcase. Maybe some of them are bringing some wealth. They've enjoyed a certain lifestyle as a settler colonist in Africa. Um, and then how did, what, what happened when initially what happened when they arrived and, and what, what, what is the, what's, what's the Portuguese term for them? Uh, I, I will horribly mispronounce it. So if you could give us one, one time in Portuguese for the, uh, for the returned. Okay. So the returned or the returnees in Portuguese would be called os retornados. Retornados meaning those who have returned. Those who have returned. Okay. And, um, you know they're, they're they're different than the Pied Noir, you touched on because um, many of them don't have the, the same roots, um, but also the economic conditions that await them are very different. The Pied Noir the Pied Noir come to France in 1962, where we're in still in the 30 glorious years. We are, but uh, Portugal Portugal's economy is is has not really taken part in the 30 glorious years in the same way, and this is post oil shock. And Absolutely. so now we're getting into the economic malaise of the 1970s. So what awaits them in what conditions, economic conditions await them in Portugal in 1975? Right. Uh, yes, uh, you, you basically gave the answer yourself. Like the, the, the point is that the economic conditions are extremely unlike those uh, the Pinot find in a booming post-war economy in France. Uh, Portugal at the time is uh, sort of, by all indicators, one of the least uh, um, least uh, performing uh, economies in in Western Europe. Um, they have terrible uh, unemployment. They have a terrible housing situation, which of course is is a crucial thing to consider when all of a sudden you have half a million people at your doorstep. Um, and as you said, the country is suffering, um, as uh, everybody else is, um, from a sort of international economic crisis, a recession, which, among other things, leads to a drop in the number of um, tourist visitors uh, to Portugal, uh, something that is a mainstay of the economy already back then, even more today, but already back then, um, tourism is a very important economic sector. And um, and all of that chaos uh, is, of course, uh, compounded by the fact that uh, they're transitioning from dictatorship to, well, they don't really know for, for some time. It's really, it's an open situation. So no one knows, um, are they steering towards some sort of socialist experiment? Is this going to be a liberal, democratic, uh, representative uh, system? It's all up in the air. Part of the economic elites of the old regime are forced to leave the country. Um, factories are down. 
and they experiment with uh, collectivization that works well in some cases, not so well in others. So it really is is um, a period of intense t- t- turmoil, both um, politically, socially, and economically. And that means that, um, yeah, those people coming well home, for some of them not home, but to to a place that they've only heard about for a third of them, they have a hard time fitting in in the beginning. And they've enjoyed a certain level of privilege uh, previously as um, a racial elite in in uh, the colonies, right? They have absolutely, and that brings me back to the the question you you asked me that I did not answer about the motives for leaving the colonies in the first place. So I think that's a very important point, and we can probably not not do it justice here. But um, it's it's true that um, in in many ways this um, is what we would call maybe a coerced or forced migration in the sense that of course no one wants to keep going in a place where um competing national liberation movements are fighting each other um and uh using mortars and guns in in your street where you cannot buy milk anymore and where the school and the doctor have closed down so i understand and everybody i think understands easily that this is a situation where people pack their things and go um, and that would be would have been the case in, in much of Angola, which is transitioning from a colonial war into a civil war between rivaling factions of competing national liberation movements, making for a sort of very volatile and um, difficult situation politically and militarily. And people are just, some are really afraid, fearing for their lives. That, that is a fact. It is also a fact, however, and I think that is something that is not discussed enough in Portugal, that um, many of them just simply didn't see themselves living under black majority rule. They had uh, no desire whatsoever to experience that. And they were used to enjoying a sort of racial privilege that um, made even the most modest Portuguese um a person with privilege as compared to what they could have achieved in in their village in Portugal, like um, people in the colonies, they had servants. Um, that was something for the upper middle class back in Portugal, inattainable for the large number of Portuguese, obviously. And all of that really, losing all of that, I think, is also what some of them, um, what drove some of them out of the, the colonies. And then there's the the effect of communal panic, like the, um, there is a, a sense of the end of the world, um, the sense of the end of our world, the colonial settler colonial world. There is um, anxieties uh, regarding uh, violence by the Africans against Portuguese. So there's a number of things that that make them leave these places. Some of them, as you said, um, can prepare for that departure. Um, it's mostly the it's the it's the it's those who are best connected, those who are most economically uh, successful, they typically have a sort of exit plan. And it's the most modest people that really stay on longest because, um, yeah, they would lose a lot and then they end up losing a lot. And so they come to Portugal with a suitcase or two. Yeah. So there, there was the suitcase. And, you know, I, I was just thinking about, you know, their arrival in Portugal and, and what I know about Western European economic history and labor history in this time period. I did a master's thesis on uh, immigrant labor in in France, and you know it's it, it's well you know the the role of uh, North Africans, particularly Algerians, as uh, you know this exploited sub level of labor in the French economy is very, it's very well known. But Portuguese play a very important role. There's the sort of stereotype of the the Portuguese construction worker or um, domestic uh you know a cleaning person and uh for people's homes being portuguese and in in france it's an age-old stereotype right so here they're fleeing these conditions in the colonies to return to portugal but portugal is in is in very difficult times and um what i mean it's it's you know that that cliche it's, it's a perfect storm here for um difficulties so let's 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 go through the book the, and the book has four chapters um maybe you can walk us through them uh, chapter one is returnees or refugees and what's what's your argument here about uh the various ways to define 
the returned? Uh, right. Um, hmm. I think uh, the argument is that that so it's it's impossible in writing that book to like you have to deal with this notion of returnees. It's just such a key concept for understanding this migration. It's 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 the way that people call it today in Portugal still. It is a colloquial term at the time, but it is also a term that has legal value at some point. So one has to start by trying to understand what, what does that really mean, returnees. And I think there's different ways of going about this. The first one would be just answering basic um, sort of... Uh, I guess, social history questions. What kind of people are these people? And um, obviously, there are very different people according to whatever their socioeconomic background is, according to which colony they came from, according to how long their family history goes back in that colony or how recently they emigrated to Angola or Mozambique. Um, according to uh, gender, according also to race, and there are um, some mixed marriages, um, not a lot, but some of them, and all of these things make, of course, for very different situations also once these people return to Portugal. Um, but then there's also things that that maybe warrant a sort of general term like this returnees term because they they also share some some key experiences one of them is being part of a close-knit settler community like these famous uh, what dane kennedy called uh, the islands of white so it's like they 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 feel that really they they're just a tiny minority surrounded by a potentially hostile black majority population so that brings them closer together and and then they share this experience of having to leave a place, most of them against their will, somewhat. Um, so they they feel that they have maybe undergone a sort of similar trauma. And then finally, um, they are being um, othered by the resident Portuguese. I call them retornados. And they don't care so much about their internal differences. They just see them as those coming from the outside. Is, does it have a somewhat pejorative sense? Uh, it absolutely does at the time. So I, I think what we see is a sort of, like it, yeah, it's really a slur calling someone a tornado at the time. Um, for a number of reasons, um, they were politically suspect. They were seen to be um, particularly reactionary fascist, while everyone else pretended they weren't anymore. Um People had a tendency of putting all the blame for colonialism on these people returning from the colonies. And of course, they had a specific and and very important role in, in supporting Portuguese colonialism settlers. But of course, other Portuguese people were part of this too. So it was also sort of easy scapegoating. And, and then, then there's this notion that there's a sort of cultural conflict, like that these are culturally different people. What and you know we we said it's about five hundred thousand people. Um, what percentage of the Portuguese population would that be? Was it right? So it would be like at the time we have about nine million uh, Portuguese residents. So in just a couple of uh, months, actually weeks, because most of this is concentrated in the summer and autumn of nineteen seventy five, there would be an increase of the Portuguese resident population by depending on which number you pick. Uh, something like five to seven percent. Yeah, that's and, that. That really struck me. Five to seven percent again in the in the space of a few weeks during this this social and economic uh, crisis and then political crisis. I mean, that that's just astounding. Um, I you know, that that really makes the um, the the Pierre Noir situation like the numbers really pale compared compared to that. And it really, really struck me there. So obviously, that creates a very fundamental problem of where are these people going to live, which is uh, chapter two. How, how's that for a segue? Very professional, right? So chapter two is hotels for the home. Yeah, <laughs> take take notes here, <laughs> podcasters. Um, chapter two is hotels for the homeless. Um, please tell us how Portugal housed these uh, these returnees. Right. Okay. <laughs> no, that was great. Great transition. So um, housing is really like like 
what what everybody seems to agree on in Portugal at the time is that these people need to be what they call integrated. And of course, the discourse of integration is still with us today in, <laughs> in all sorts of uh, in, in felicitous ways. If you ask what they understand at the time when they talk about integration, what do they actually mean? They have a, actually a very basic understanding of um, integration being that everyone needs to have a job and everyone needs to have a place to live. And once these things are accomplished, um, the Portuguese government will consider them to be integrated. Now, that that sounds pretty straightforward, only that, um, as we said, both the job and the housing situation are extremely um, complicated at the time. So what the Portuguese do is that they um, put them in all sorts of um, temporary facilities. Interestingly, a lot of them are um, hotels or that can be small pensions and guest houses, but also up to upscale and um, five-star luxury hotels that will now take in these refugees from the colonies. Would you even even if you know even if as someone who for work spends a lot of time living in hotels, even in nicer hotels, it's still a hotel room, which is not, you know, it's if you've if you've had you know a, a villa or your you know a bungalow in Angola. Um, that's it's going to be very just in terms of space. It's going to be very confining. It may, may, may be in a beautiful beach. You may have a lovely view and all that, but you're still trapped in this little hotel room, maybe without a kitchen. And and that's just I found that so fascinating. It is fascinating, and they're trapped without a kitchen, which is why many of them start cooking in in their rooms, which displeases the managers of those hotels. <laughs> yeah. So, so what the, the chapter does is is uh, unearthing all sorts of uh, like micro stories about conflicts that um, come up in these uh, confined spaces. But I think there is a sort of broader point to it, and that broader point is that what we like, if you look for a sort of official narrative of this return movement to Portugal today, then what you will hear is that um, okay. This was a really difficult um, time period for them to come home. Basically, it was a recipe for disaster. There were no jobs. There was no housing. But then everyone sort of rolled up their sleeves. Um, everyone uh, reached out to these people in solidarity, national solidarity. And surprisingly, in just a couple of years, all of them were beautifully integrated into that new post-imperial nation. So there's a very clear success story of integration. And I think it does get some things right, but I think it also does get a lot of things wrong. And one place where we can see that is actually by looking at those who were um, housed by the state in a temporary facilities. It could be a luxury hotel, yes, but for many, it was a simple pension. For many others, it was actually disaffected prisons it was camping sites, it was um, all sorts of really spaces that weren't meant for housing people, and where they lived in terrible conditions, and some of them did live in these places for 10 years. So um, I, I don't think the success story of integration is entirely warranted. And as I tried to show in that chapter, we can see that there is a tendency, um, unsurprisingly, I guess, but um, important, for those people who um, economically have the most difficulties to begin with, they will most often end up for very long years in these temporary accommodations. The same thing for people who are racialized as being other. Um, it's I don't have sort of statistics on that because they don't exist, but I have a lot of evidence that really shows if you if your Portugueseness is in question because you are not being perceived as white, then you stand a bigger chance of ending up in a hotel room for 10 years, sharing it with your parents as you um, go through your teenage years. And of course, that is a horrible experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, that leads us to the third chapter, um, making claims and taking action. And here you look at these returnees as political actors. So if you could tell us about that, and, and of course, I'm curious to hear how they compare with the uh, the Pierre Noir, who were notorious for their support of uh Jean-Marie Le Pen and the, the Front National in France, the reactionary anti, uh, anti-immigrant anti um, uh, forces. So how, 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 did the, how did the returnees work as political actors? All right. So 
Um, now it's interesting that the comment you made you made about the PNR because it was also an assumption that was really um, widespread at the time. People just naturally imagined that uh, these uh, they would be right wing people, basically. And of course, that that is, I mean, you, you can see a lot of stereotyping in this that, again, is sort of some, some facile scapegoating. But on the other hand, it also makes perfect sense um, that people would have believed that. Because here were these people that had lost a lot in transitioning from the colonies back to the metropole. They may have lost uh, a house. They may have lost a business. They may have lost... Um, way of life they were they that was theirs and that they appreciated and um they were of course blaming um the left-wing governments in power that had negotiated decolonization they were blaming them for this outcome so decolonization the experience of decolonization the experience of being a settler but then becoming a refugee sort of naturally pushed many of these people to the political right because decolonization had been orchestrated by left-wing governments in Portugal. So, and so they were perceived as being a threat to the Portuguese socialist revolution. And you see in, in government documents that they really have a, like what, what they're working with are sort of containment strategies. Much of what they do in terms of integrating these people um, for all the grandiose rhetoric of national solidarity, they do it to defuse political protest. Um, Political protest there is. As soon as they come, they start organizing. There's been spontaneous demonstrations. They occupy a bank. They occupy government buildings. And they basically have a sort of very concrete material claims to begin with. They say, okay, we need more planes flying people out of Angola. Um, we need someone that helps transport our luggage. Um, we need better housing, we need jobs, that kind of thing. Um, but what is also striking is that from the get-go, you also see that they engage in the sort of memory politics, and they want the Portuguese to recognize um, their vision of imperial history and its ending. So basically, they want they want them to recognize that, yes, they had been these hardworking pioneers, and that it was... Um, under their watch that uh, Angola and Mozambique were transformed from uh, atavistic uh, places to well-ordered colonies. They want credit for that work of civilizing. They want credit for the, as they claim, traumatic experience um, of, of returning that they have experienced. And at the same time, they want to be told that no, they had no special responsibility in colonialism. Colonialism as a system of exploitation was a bad thing that the fascist regime did, not them. And what is interesting for me to see is that um, the government and the mainstream media, they're very ready to give them that recognition. And they, they agree on a sort of history of Portuguese settler colonialism, um, I think makes for a very difficult legacy for debating colonialism in Portugal today. Right. So, 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 where do you take this in the fourth chapter, uh, the return of the returned, where you're exploring memory and this quote reemergence of the returnees? Yeah. Um, every time you're asking me the next question, I realize it didn't really answer the previous one, <laughs> but, but maybe I did. Like I, I, um, I'll get to that in a second. Let me yeah, just ask, sure. because you asked about the pied noir. So what is striking that it is in the Portuguese case that um, they do form associations like the PNR in France famously do. But these associations of returnees, uh, they, are, um, they are very weakly structured and they're not very active. Um, after a couple of years, most of them are gone. And so what we do not see in Portugal um, is a sort of... Um, is a sort of Pinoir culture that is uh, being carried on to new generations through these associations. And it's interesting to speculate on why that would be the case. I think one of the reasons is the one we touched upon already, that um, many Algerian settlers coming to France, they have in fact a longer history 
in Algeria, they feel more uh, outside to French society than these Portuguese regionies do, because many of them do still have family, do still have friends, do still have uh, business connections in Portugal, and they can reactivate these connections. So I think they're more easily assimilated into the mainstream population. And and they're and they're spread out in Portugal. They're spread out a bit more, right? Whereas um, in my mind, you know, the the Pied Noir tend to concentrate in coastal Provence and in, in a few pockets. Is, is, do I have that correct? You have that correct for, for France um, and you have that correct in that this is a very common idea. Um, also, Portuguese policymakers at the time I think one of the fascinating things is that, I mean, that shouldn't surprise us, but, but there is a trans-imperial dimension to this in that um, Portuguese policymakers, they're looking to the French example and they say, what we do not want to see in Portugal is something like the Pinot phenomenon in France. So let's try to spread them out as evenly as we can. Ah, uh, so they're they're very conscious of that, and they're 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 they trying are. from that. They are, but I'm not sure that they actually have the means to actively spread the population. I'm not sure um, they are better spread out than in France. I don't think that's the decisive uh, thing here. Um, but be that as it may, they they never get to form these durable associations. And I think one of the um, points that can explain that is that the Portuguese state never really engaged in any sort of, um, they never paid them any compensation for the losses occurred through decolonization. In France, uh, 10 years after the end of the Algerian war, the first laws come that provide indemnity what is the word indemnification? Indemnity, mm-hmm. indemnity for um, whatever is it that it, it is that they claim they have lost in decolonization, and that never happens uh, in Portugal. And so, the Portuguese state is just saying this is not happening, or it's maybe happening another time, but not now. So they never really manage to extract compensation payment payments from the Portuguese state, and because they don't, I think they they lack a reason for keeping uh, themselves organized. And they, they they try to form a pressure group, but it doesn't really work. And so at some point they just drop it. Yeah. So then how, how, did, how in that last chapter then, how do you explore the memory of the returned and, right. and this history? Yes, like there's, there's been a sort of, so for the, the success story of integration seems to indicate that just after a couple of years, um, everyone has just blended in perfectly in this post-imperial Portuguese society. And in fact, there is not a lot of talk about these returnees in the 1980s and 90s. That changes in the 2000s. Um, it changes first. We see a sort of uh, mini memory boom. There's the sort of memorial literature novels that are set in Africa that treat uh, this migration, return migration. That become popular there um, is a TV show at some point. Um, there is the first exhibition on the topic. So there is a renewed interest in the history of these returnees. Um, much of it is very uncritical. Um, much of it follows the established storylines of either the successful integration or the traumatic uh, uprooting. Um, and At the same time, memory scholars, um, memory history, memory studies, cultural studies begin looking at this phenomenon. I think um, the explanation for this is uh, on the one hand that uh, we see that kind of effect typically after something like 40 years or so, when people, it sounds ridiculous, but but there seems to be something to it. The discussions Mm -hmm. in in France about the Algerian war, they really take off uh, in the 2000s and Mm -hmm. It's just when people enter old age and they start um, telling their children stuff they didn't tell them before, and then the children get interested in that. And so there's, there's I think there's a family dynamic around this. Another thing is that um, veterans of the colonial wars, they had started lobbying for more recognition of their fate. And so that kind of brought the experience of decolonization into sharper focus in the Portuguese public sphere in the late 1990s. But I think it's also that we see a sort of global turn to empire these last couple of years, and and Portugal is not an island. So at some point, uh, these trends um, had to have some impact in, in Portugal too. 
And so I think here, as in many other parts of the chapters, but we haven't really talked about that so much yet, but I think this is a very nas- national national story in, in many ways. Um, I tell it as a story in which the nation is being reconfigured after empire. But at the same time, these reconfigurations, uh, they always um, partake in, in broader transnational developments and this turn to uh, colonial memories that we see the last um, couple of years is also increasingly being felt in Portugal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for, for the book as a whole, what, uh, what do you want the impact of post-colonial people to be um, uh, maybe as a contribution to this history of, of memory or to um, what sort of hole do you want it to fill in the historiographic record? Right. I, I think... Um... I think um, it, it really depends. Like, I think I have two audiences in mind. Like, the book was written in English, um, and I, 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 uh, I was keen to publish with a sort of internationally visible publisher. Like, I wanted this to be part of a sort of um, anglophone um, conversation on decolonization. And in that conversation, um, Portugal is mostly absent for a number of reasons that are really are interesting to discuss. Language barriers are, of course, one thing, but it's also like there's a lot of I I I in, in Berlin I've worked uh, for ten years with people who do excellent global history, and still it's interesting to see that these people doing global history in Berlin when they when we talked about how to sell that book to Cambridge University Press they said, be careful, don't make this too much about Portugal, like you have to think about this international audience. They will not be interested in Portugal. You have to give them something else. And I, I get that. Like, of course, all of us should be um, attempting to be placing our case studies into a broader conversation. But I didn't get the same comments from my book on France. So, so Portugal is really being marginalized uh, academically. I would, I would venture uh, saying that. And yes, I do want to show that. Um, this book can can make a valuable contribution to broader discussions about decolonization and more specifically what decolonization meant for European societies. And I'm I'm not sure the book is wildly um, uh, original. Like it's it's a building on a number of studies. Um, Todd Shepard for the French case, the book by Claire Eldridge on the PNOR, um, the book by Pamela Bellinger on Italian repatriates, uh, the book by Elizabeth Butner on Europe after empire. These these are really books that that helped me a lot, like like make sense of this Portuguese case. But um, I I I just want I just want to use this um, to make a contribution to the history of decolonization, but also to think about how ca- how is it that we can write meaningful national histories after the transnational and global turn. And here my point would be by would be to say by by pointing out how how the making of the nation in this case the remaking of the nation after empire is an inherently transnational affair on many levels absolutely absolutely and and just for me as, as someone who teaches courses in 20th century world i need to rewrite my decolonization lectures now um i'm gonna so so thank you for giving me extra work this summer but um there it's it, yes the the portuguese uh narrative ha- is marginalized and in, in discussions of western europe and in marginalized in world history after you know the 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 height of the portuguese empire uh several centuries ago and this but this is really significant and and does such uh such great work um working as a contrast to more familiar cases of decolonization. And and again, we've, we've said them several times, but the Pierre Noir story. So I'm definitely going to rewrite this lecture with this pairing and, and that, you know, here's these two cases, you know, some 15 years apart. So thank you for, um, I was going to have a relaxing summer, but now I got to, I got to <laughs> write, I got to write some lectures. Um, wow. Thanks. That's a nice compliment. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So, You've been really generous with your time, Christoph, but uh, we've got two more questions before we let you go. And these are the traditional new books debriefing questions. Um, first, okay. uh, more homework. Uh, can you suggest two books for the audience? Like, yes. Do you mean by that? Do you mean books that are specifically related to this topic or just any books? Up to you. Up to you. Related okay. to this topic. Yeah. yeah, right. Can I make it three then? 
if I go put that. Okay, just because you're nice. <laughs> okay, I just take the last three books that I actually read. Um, so uh, the first one would be by uh, Burley Hendrickson, Decolonizing 1968, it's called. Mm, yeah. so, subtitled Transnational Student Activism in Tunis, uh, Paris, and Dakar. And uh, despite the, uh, how can I phrase this, despite the un unnecessarily fashionable and somewhat misleading title, this Decolonizing 68, I think this is a great book uh, in that it it really makes um, a solid case for that post-imperial connection. So in this case, between um, societies that emerged from the ruins of the French Empire, but also um, uh, uh, the former imperial metropole, that these connections continue to matter after the end of empire in specific ways, so that we actually need a sort of um, post-imperial scale of analysis in global history. That's my takeaway. And I think that that is really a good book. Yeah, it's uh, really not, not so much a decolonizing, but a, a post-colonial 68 with the, the legacies of, of imperial connections surviving and impacting the, that year. Absolutely. Then the second one I just read, uh, finished, was really nice. Uh, it's by Ilara Berthaud. Uh, it's a bi biography of Leopold Sédar Senghor. So Ilara Berthaud is a, is a French um, literary scholar and historian of, of Africa, uh, West Africa in particular. And um, it's a cool book because it's such a fascinating guy. So she she is trying to say, okay, here we have the cliché of the poet président, Um on the one hand, and we have the idea of Songor as a neo-colonial puppet um, at the service of French interests in Senegal, on the other hand, and um, there's much more to the man than this, and actually rereading uh, re his writings today, also with an eye to the environmental catastrophe, is a good mm -hmm. idea, and that uh, she made a good case for that. And then finally, it's it's really not um, it's really not um, because I want to be nice to you, but in preparation for this, I read your book, The Great Hanoi Retant, and I'm I just must say I'm fascinated by by this graphic history. Like, how can you like? I think it's a brilliant idea. I didn't know this series existed. I didn't know this book existed, and I'm really happy I stumbled upon it because it is a global microhistory that is just smashing as a global microhistory. But then on top of it also comes the visualization aspect, and I really appreciate the the work that must have gone into that, and I think it's adding a layer of richness that is really incredible. So I'm going to use it um, like I have um, an approaches to history class, and one of the sessions is on urban history. And I will use that uh, uh, in in the fall um, for the urban history session because I really loved it. Well, I'm I'm very I'm very sunburned right now, but you may be able to tell I'm blushing. Um, <laughs> that's thank you for the very kind words. Um, <laughs> um, and then um, finally, what are you working on now, and what can we hope to see from you next? Okay, so I'm I'm so I'm, I'm I I love languages. I love learning languages and. Um, I thought I'd do a project on on languages actually, and <laughs> it would still be a project on decolonization as as this eternal contested and incomplete transition out of empire. So decolonization as a history is is something that I'm really interested in. And what I would like to do is choose language as a lens of historical analysis. So concretely, I would be looking at um, French and Portuguese speaking Africans between nation building and world making from the 1960s to the 1980s. One case would be Senegal, the other would be Angola. And the idea would be to, well, to look at the role that European languages, French and Portuguese, played in in nation building and world making in these two contexts post-colonial contexts so um if we look at sociolinguistics if we look at ideas like language policies language attitudes language uses if you use that as a vantage point for writing political social intellectual history more broadly what do we get out of this and I'm not sure where exactly this is leading me, but I feel that it really, um, that global history, transnational history, cares so little about language, ultimately, is that can be right. Um, language is such, such a powerful connector, and, and therefore I think it, it can be given a bigger role 
in uh, writing uh, transnational and global histories. And I, I think I'm just fascinated by the ambivalence of European languages, which are um, imposed, of course, but at the same time, they're being appropriated by Africans, and they have been all along. They are limiting in many ways, but they are also enabling. And um, I, I want to find out more about this ambivalence. And I'm really scared to do that because I'm not a historian of Africa by training. Um, so I will have to think about this a lot more. And anyone who listens to that and has um, cues for me, ideas, tips, please hit me up and and help me develop this further. But um, that's what I want to be doing next. That, that sounds fascinating. And, and of course, it makes me think of um, a Southeast Asian example with East Timor, where, you know, post-independence, um, uh, well, the real independence after uh, after uh, Indonesia left, um, four languages, uh, four official languages, Portuguese, Bahasa-Indonesia, um, uh, Titum, and English, and the, the difficulties, but also possibilities. Um, having those multiple language sets offers for East Timor. Absolutely. Yeah. It really is a sort of universal, I mean, that's not the right word, I guess, but it, it's a problem arising really every single post-colonial society. So studying this in, in Senegal and Angola, yes, why not? But it could be it could be different places too, because all of them have to ask, okay, colonialism is over, but the language is still there. What do we do with it? Yeah. And then it, it impacts um, our profession. It impacts the historians, uh, the way in which um, archives follow the imperial flag and linguistic training. Absolutely. Uh, and there's, you know, there's divides between Anglophone and, and Francophone and Lusophone uh, Africa, um, and that's going to disrupt the historical record. And I think, as, as alluded to earlier, with a country that's sort of marginalized in historiography like Portugal, that means that um, the Lusosphere in, in, uh, in Africa is going to be marginalized. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really great project. Love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Christoph Kalter, um, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed this. So did I. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was great. <laughs> This has been a conversation with Christoph Kalter about his post-colonial people, the return from Africa and the remaking of Portugal out with Cambridge University Press in 2022. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode in New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.